And the subject we are considering is indeed important because our understanding of this matter could well determine whether we will accept or reject the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to the earth to establish God's kingdom here. And in order to better understand the subject we are considering this evening, it is helpful if we have an understanding, a basic understanding of the fundamental teaching of the Bible concerning Christ's second coming. And there are hundreds, literally hundreds of verses in the Bible which deal with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return to the earth to establish the kingdom of God. For example, in Acts chapter 1 and at verse 11, we read, which also said, that is, the angels said to the apostles at the time of the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. We could take the words of the Apostle Paul as they are found in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1 where he said, I charge thee therefore before God, this is Paul writing to Timothy, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick, that is the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. We could take a verse from the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 2 and at verse 44, which speaks of the fact that God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to establish a worldwide kingdom here upon the earth which will replace all the kingdoms of men. And in Daniel chapter 2 and at verse 44 we read, And in the days of these kings, and we believe that these are the days in which we are living, and in the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom, which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, that is, all the kingdoms of men. And it, the kingdom of God, shall stand forever. Now, as well as that, at his return, the Bible teaches that Christ will build a temple at Jerusalem. We read that, for example, in the second chapter of Isaiah between verses 1 and 4. And there the record says, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion, that's Mount Zion at Jerusalem, out of Mount Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. And in the closing chapters of Ezekiel, we are given a description of this wonderful house of prayer, this wonderful temple which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to establish at Jerusalem. In the centre of the temple is Mount Zion. The temple itself is one, approximately 1 1.4 kilometres square. An absolutely magnificent house of prayer, a magnificent temple which the Lord Jesus Christ is going to build at Jerusalem and which, which we just read something about in Isaiah chapter 2. And in the kingdom that Christ will establish here on earth at his coming, Jerusalem is going to be the capital of that kingdom. 
Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 17 says, And at that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. And all the nations shall be gathered unto it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. Neither shall they walk any more after the imagination of their evil heart. So you can see this can become a massive change here upon the earth as the Lord Jesus Christ establishes the kingdom of God here. At that time they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. In the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, verses 34 and 35, we read, But I say unto you, said the Lord Jesus Christ, Swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. It is at Jerusalem that the Lord Jesus Christ will establish the centre of the administration of this kingdom of God, this worldwide kingdom of God, which he will establish on the earth at his coming. Now, here's what we've said about that, of course, is just very brief this evening. We're just being tried to lay a foundation for what we want to say about Antichrist in a minute. But what we have seen so far, by way of summary, of this fundamental Bible teaching is this. Firstly, Jesus Christ will return to the earth. Secondly, he will establish the kingdom of God here on the earth. Thirdly, he will, he will rule over the world from Jerusalem. And fourthly, he will build a temple at Jerusalem as a house of prayer for all people. Now you'll see the relevance of having that basic uh, fundamental understanding as we proceed with our subject this evening. So now to our subject. We're going to start by considering what some people believe about the Antichrist. And here's what the Century Dictionary has to say about the Antichrist. It says, The word occurs in the Scriptures only in the epistles of John, but the same person or power is elsewhere referred to. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll have a look at that a little later on, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 2 Peter chapter 2. Interpreters of Scripture differ in their understanding of these references. One supposed them to relate to a lawless but impersonal power, a spirit opposed to Christianity, some to a historic personage or potentate such as Caligula, Titus, the Pope, or Luther. Some suppose this term to relate to a great power for evil yet to be manifested and gathered about a central personal agency. Roman Catholic writers commonly interpret the word generically of any adversary of Christ and of the authority of the church, but specifically at the last and greatest persecutor of the Christian church at the end of the world. The name has also been applied to pretenders to the Messiahship or false Christs who have arisen at various periods as being antagonistic to the true Christ. Of these, as many as 64 have been reckoned, including some of little importance, and also some as Muhammad, who cannot properly be classed among them. Now, some of these views about the Antichrist are absolutely dangerous, and they're dangerous because of the consequences that flow from them. Now, I suggest to you that what Mr. Hal Lindsay has to say about this subject is in fact dangerous. And this is what he says about it in the book he wrote called The Late Great Planet Earth. He says this, The time is ripe and getting riper for a great dictator, the one we call the future Fuhrer. This is the one who is, who is predicted in the scriptures very clearly 
and called the Antichrist. He says in another reference, the Antichrist will deify himself, just like the Caesars did. He will proclaim himself to be God. He will demand that he be worshipped and establish himself in the temple of God. There is only one place where this temple of God can be, and that is on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. But you'll recall, respected friends, that we saw a little earlier in this address this evening that it is Christ who will build a temple at Jerusalem. So you see the problem, you see the danger. When Christ returns and commences to build the temple, people who think like Mr Lindsay will oppose him. They will think that Christ is the Antichrist with disastrous consequences for them. But let's read on. Mr Lindsay again. The Antichrist, who was called by many names in the Bible, but in Second Thessalonians is called the Lawless One, will come in on a wave of anarchy. That is why the world will be ready to receive him. Again he says, this period of time will make the regimes of Hitler, Mayo and Stalin look like Girl Scouts wearing a deity chain by comparison. The Antichrist is going to be given absolute authority to act with the power of Satan. So, as I say, people who think like Mr Lindsay will in fact mistake Christ for the Antichrist they will misunderstand the power and authority of Christ, that power and authority which he's going to exercise as he sets about setting up the kingdom of God here on earth. So you can see why the views of Mr Lindsay and those who believe like him are in fact very dangerous views. So misunderstanding the Bible teaching, the Bible teaching on this subject, will cause many to believe that Christ, the real Christ, the true Christ, is the Antichrist. That, unfortunately, having the beliefs that they do, is what they will believe when Christ returns to the earth. So we've got to ask ourselves, who is the real Antichrist? What does the Bible say on this topic? The word Antichrist occurs five times in the Bible and all five occurrences are in the epistles of John. Not the Gospel record, but the epistles of John. So what does the Bible say about Antichrist? Well, in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 we read this. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. So you see, anybody who opposes the Lord Jesus Christ, who opposes his doctrine, who opposes the things he stands for, they are antichrist if they do that. But as the Bible sets out, there is one person in particular whom the Bible, as we will discover, labels the Antichrist. So in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 19, we see the development of this Antichrist system. John says, they went out from us. In other words, they were part of the true believers. They left the true believers. They went out from us, says John. But they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be manifest, that they were not of us. So you see, there came a time when people departed from the true doctrine, from the true understanding of the Bible, and they went out. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 22, we now are starting to get to a point where the Bible is talking about a person, rather than many antichrists, one person who is the antichrist, the real antichrist. So John says, in his first epistle, chapter 2, and at verse 22, 
who is a liar, but who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Now, this matter of denying the Father and the Son, you see, by the means of the false doctrine of the Trinity, the papacy denies the reality of the father and son relationship, which existed ex existed when Christ was on earth before and still exists today, that relationship being the, being the father and the son. I mean, the, the terms themselves, father and son, when you think about it, absolutely eliminate any idea of a trinity. A son can't be as old as his father. And if there's a father and a son, there are two people, not one. So the doctrine of the trinity erroneously claims that the father and the son are co-equal, exactly the same uh, degree of equality, one not superior to the other, one not inferior. They are co-equal, co-eternal. How can a son be as old as his father? That's an impossibility, isn't it? So the Trinity erroneously claims that the father and son are co-equal, same power, co-eternal, same age. But what do the scriptures say? I'd like you to turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And there we read this. And Jesus, when he was baptised, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now I ask you, does that sound like a trinity? Does that sound like the Father and Son are one person? Does it sound like they're co-equal and co-eternal? Of course not. The Bible knows nothing about the doctrine of the trinity when it's properly understood. Come with me please to John chapter 5 and verse 30. And here's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, saying this. He says, I can of mine own self do nothing. Does that sound like he was all-powerful and had all authority? He said, I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which hath sent me. Now, those words of the Lord Jesus Christ are fatal to the doctrine of the Trinity. Come across to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and at verse 31. And there we read this. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. Now notice... At this time, the Lord Jesus Christ was in heaven. He had ascended from earth to heaven. And at that particular time, the Apostle Paul, in writing about it, says the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the father-son relationship existed between those two people even after the Lord Jesus Christ was immortalised and ascended to heaven. Now, for the sake of time, we'll just take one more in Ephesians chapter 1 and at verse 3. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the believers in Ephesus. And he says in Ephesians 1 and at verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father, God and Father. Now, look, if you've got a God, respected friends, you're talking about someone who is superior to you. I mean, that's the idea of the word God, is it not? And so here the Apostle Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, Blessed be the God and Father 
at our Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord Jesus Christ has got a God and he's got that God is his Father. All right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Come with me now, please, to 1 John chapter 4 and at verse 3 as we consider what the Bible says about the Antichrist or something more of what the Bible says about the Antichrist. 1 John chapter 4 and at verse 3. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof we have heard that it should come, that it is, that it is come, that it should come, and even now already is in the world. The second epistle of John, chapter 1 and verse 7 says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the papacy denies that Christ came in the flesh. The papacy denies that Christ came in our flesh. All right? The papal papacy does this by means of the false doctrine of immaculate conception. You see, they claim that Mary, the mother of Christ, was specially conceived so that she did not inherit one of the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin, which is the proneness of humans to sin. This proneness is biblically described as sin in the flesh. So, you see, they say, seeing Mary had no sin in the flesh, then it follows, they say, that her offspring likewise had no sin in the flesh, which effectively means that Christ did not come in the same flesh and blood nature as ourselves. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches emphatically that he did come in the same nature as ourselves. That he did have the same flesh and blood as we have. Come with me please to Hebrews chapter 2 and at verse 14 where the Apostle Paul piles word upon word to emphasise the sameness of the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ with our nature. And there in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 Paul says for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. So the Apostle Paul is talking about people like ourselves. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus Christ, also himself likewise. No ambiguity there, is there? He also himself likewise took part of the same, the same flesh and blood nature as we have. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, <coughs> that is the devil. So you see, there again is an indication of who the Antichrist really is, you see, because the papacy denies that Christ came in the flesh. The Apostle Paul plainly says they are wrong. The Lord Jesus Christ came in the same flesh and blood nature as ourselves. Mary was not immaculate and the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't immaculate. He didn't have an immaculate nature either. He had the same nature as you and I have before he was immortalised after his resurrection from the dead. Right, let's summarise what we have found. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 says, Antichrist shall come. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 also says that in John days, John's days, many antichrists were at work. John says that 
the Antichrist left the truth. They went out from us. John says that people who can be identified as Antichrist, they deny the Father and the Son. They deny that relationship. They talk about God and the Lord Jesus Christ being co-equal and so forth, co-eternal. Fifthly, Antichrists deny that Christ came in the flesh. And of course the papacy does all those things. Alright? Alright, what the Apostle John describes as the Antichrist, the Apostle Paul calls the man of sin or that wicked. So Paul doesn't use the term Antichrist, he uses the term man of sin. You see, it's starting to become down to one chief person who is the Antichrist or that wicked. All right, so we're now going to look at what John, what, sorry, what the Apostle Paul says in the first eight verses of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. So we make our way through it. Verse 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Just comment on that because here we have a clear reference to the fact that Christ will return to the earth and that faithful followers of his, both living and dead, will be assembled with him. They will be assembled with him. They will be gathered unto him. Next verse. Paul says, That ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. And we can comment upon that and say that the problem which Paul is addressing here is false claims that Christ had already returned or was about to return. So he says, as he writes to the Thessalonians, Paul says, don't be worried about this. Don't be worried. Don't be troubled by spirit, he says. Now when he's talking about don't be troubled by spirit, that is, he's saying, don't be troubled by a supposed revelation by a person claiming Holy Spirit gifts that Christ had returned. Don't be troubled about that. Someone claim, comes to you with Holy Spirit gifts and says, I've got the gift of the Spirit and I'm telling you that Christ has come or is about to come. Paul says, don't be disturbed about that. He goes on to say, don't be disturbed by spirit nor by word. And what he's talking about here is a report by word of mouth that the Lord had returned. Don't be troubled by spirit, that is someone claiming Holy Spirit gifts that says that Christ has come. Don't be troubled by someone by word of mouth who says he's come. Don't be worried, oh, he goes on to say, by a letter as from us. That's strange, isn't it? But you see, what was happening, ladies and gentlemen, is that errorists had resorted to forging letters which purported to have come from the Apostle Paul. This practice was sometimes counted when Paul sent his letters, his epistles, by the hand of a recognised associate of his. And we can read of that in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 21 and 22. So sometimes, to make sure that the people who received the message understood that it was genuinely from the Apostle Paul, he sent it by a trusted associate of his whom the recipients of the letter knew was a trusted associate of his. So Paul says, don't be shaken in mind, don't be troubled, don't be troubled by someone who comes along to you and says, look, I've got the Holy Spirit gifts and I'm telling you that Christ has come or is about to come. Don't be troubled by someone who uses their mouth to say that Christ has come or about to come. Don't be troubled if you get a letter, which is virtually a forgery, which says that the day of Christ is at hand. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now he goes on to say, 
that you be not seen shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, the New International Translation makes it a bit clearer when it says, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. And in subsequent verses, Paul goes on to outline what had to happen before Christ returns to the earth. That's what he's doing. There's been all this nonsense going on, saying that Christ was about to return or had returned. Paul says, don't be troubled by those sorts of reports. And I'm now going to set out for you, he's basically saying, what has to happen before Christ returns to the earth. So we go to the next verse. He says to the Thessalonians, let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. That is, a falling away from pure doctrine, a falling away from the truth. Paul says, the day of Christ's coming won't occur before there's been a great apostasy, before, there's become, before there has been a falling away, you see. And not only that, not only has there to be a falling away, but the man of sin has to be revealed, the son of perdition. So you can comment on that in this way. Paul's point is that before Christ returns, a major Christian apostasy had to develop. There had to come a departure from the true teaching of the scriptures. The seeds of the apostasy had been sown, but the fruit was not yet fully manifested. A man of sin, says the Apostle Paul, a man of sin had yet to be revealed, but the apostasy itself had begun. And we'll come down to verse 7 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 in a minute. So you can see what the Apostle Paul is saying. Now he goes on to talk about this man of sin. Is this this man of sin who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God, sitting in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God? And we might comment in this way. Here we're given a clue as to who the man of sin, who the antichrist, who the man of sin of verse 3 is. Paul says, he exalts himself above all the so-called gods and shows himself to be God. Now, respected friends, the men who have done this down through history are the popes. Here are just three claims of the Roman Catholic Church. Firstly, the Lord our God no longer reigns. He has resigned all power to the Pope. And I've given you the quote there of the person who records that as being the view of the Roman Catholics. All right? Secondly, the Pope is not only the representative of Jesus Christ, but is Jesus Christ himself hidden under the veil of flesh? Does the Pope speak? It's Jesus who speaks. And that statement came from Pope Pius X when he was Archbishop of Venice. Thirdly, we can quote the Council of Trent. He, the Pope, hath all power on earth, all temporal power is his, the dominion, jurisdiction and government of the whole earth is his by divine right. The rulers of the earth are his subjects and must submit to him. Fourthly, we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4 that this man of sin this one whom John calls the Antichrist, 
He opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now we've just looked at some quotes which indicate clearly that this view, this is the view of the Roman Catholic Church in relation to their popes. But so we can make this further comment. We can raise this question. How could the Pope be said to sit in the temple of God? And the answer to that question is this, that St Peter's Basilica at Rome is regarded by Roman Catholics as the temple of God. Picard, regarded as an authority on Roman Catholic ceremony, describes the adoration of the Pope with the following statement. He, the Pope, presides in the temple of the Lord. And that's a quote from the Divine Program of the World's History, which is quoted in F. Walker, Watchman 1, What of the Night, page 51. He, the Pope, the Catholics believe, presides in the temple of the Lord. And of course, there you have a picture of St Peter's Basilica in Rome, and there's the forecourt at the front of it, a picture taken from the dome of the Basilica. All right, let's come to the next couple of verses, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul says to the Thessalonians, Remember ye not that when I was with you, I told you these things. And we, now we know that now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. Now verse 6 is a bit awkward, isn't it, in the authorised version. The International Version translates verse 6 this way. And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. And respected friends, the wise of Roman, the Roman Catholic Church and the papacy was held back initially in the first and second centuries by paganism. The Catholics were having difficulty making headways or headway in an atmosphere where paganism prevailed. Although, as the next verse shows, the seeds of its false doctrines were well and truly known and well and truly sown when Paul wrote this epistle to the Thessalonians. So we read in the seventh verse, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let until he is taken out of the way. Now when the authorised version was translated, words didn't always have exactly the same meaning as they have today. And back at the time when the authorised version was translated, letteth meant restraineth. So the meaning is, he that now restraineth will restrain until he is taken out of the way. Paganism, which was holding back the development of Roman Catholicism, was finally removed by the emperor, Roman Emperor Constantine, who with pagan beliefs presided at ecclesiastical councils and adjudicated on matters of doctrine and practice. He was finally immersed three days before his death in AD 337. Thus commenced a line of so-called Christian emperors which allowed the papacy to ruthlessly crush any opposition. But Paul says in this verse, the mystery of iniquity doth already work. The word iniquity would better be translated as lawlessness as it is in the New International Version. And the New Testament gives us plenty of examples of lawlessness in both doctrine and practice which were leading people 
from the truth. So we come to Second Thessalonians chapter two and verse eight. Then shall that wicked now you see John describes that wicked as the Antichrist. Paul describes that wicked as the man that that uh, that uh, person as the uh, man of sin, and here in this verse he describes him as the wicked. So if you're dealing with Antichrist, the man of sin, or wicked, that wicked, you're dealing with the same person. You're dealing with the popes. Then shall that wicked be revealed, revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. By way of comment we can say, so we are informed that the wicked or man of sin would continue until the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth. And so you can look out on our world, you can see the Pope in Rome, you can see Roman Catholicism continuing. And that's going to happen until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, at which time, Paul says, the Lord will destroy that wicked or that man of sin. Now we're now going to look at the man of sin in the book of Revelation. We're going to see what the last book of the Bible has to say about Antichrist, not that it uses that term, but this is what he's being spoken about, or that wicked, or the man of sin. And we're going to go to Revelation chapter 13. I'll ask you please to turn there with me. Revelation chapter 13. And we understand, of course, that the book of Revelation is a book very, very largely written in symbol. So when we come to verse 1 of Revelation chapter 13, this is what we read. And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and so forth. So in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 1, we are introduced to the beast of the sea. Right? When you come down to verse 11, we're introduced to another beast, this time called the beast of the earth. See in verse 11, I beheld and another beast coming up out of the earth. Now these two symbolic beasts speak of Roman Catholicism in two phases of its existence. Alright? As you can see from the map, the Roman Empire at the time of, Emperor, time of Emperor Constantine shows all the countries of Rome controlled, shows all the countries that Rome controlled surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. And that was the extent of the territories, which, territory which was controlled by Rome at the time of Constantine, about 336 AD. Alright, so that is the beast of the sea, as it were. And the beast of the sea symbolises the Roman Empire at that particular time. But later, a division occurred in the Roman Empire and Rome lost control of much of the territory which surrounded the Mediterranean Sea. However, it extended its influence and authority into Europe, far more into Europe than it was in the days of Constantine. And having done that, it is thus represented symbolically in Revelation chapter 13 as the beast of the earth. And this is a later date, you know, we're now up around 812 AD. So these last two maps, these last two slides which we have looked at, show that Revelation 13 is about Rome. It's about Rome. And that's why I dealt with the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea, because we need to establish that Revelation 13 is about Rome. And the last verse of Revelation chapter 13 says this, Revelation 13 and the very last verse, which is verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, 
For it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred three score and six. Six hundred and sixty-six. So you see, the beast of the earth, controlled by the Pope, the man has a number, and the number is 666. Now what I'm now going to do in explaining this matter, I'm going to quote what a prominent Christadelphian, a Mr Robert Roberts, wrote in 1880, and our views have not changed on that matter over that period of time. So here's an extract from a lecture by Mr. Robert Roberts in 1880. He says, Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 603 score, 303 score, that should be, and 6. There has been a great deal of guessing and speculation on this subject. It is a standing joke with the scorning and stoffing, scoffing class. But it is a matter of wisdom for all that. The difficulty which most people have in finding out is due to the fact that their theology prevents them from identifying the beast. They regard the Roman communion as part of the true church of Christ and are therefore driven to look into indefinite futurity for this phenomenon of human history which is already hoary with age. Those who know the truth are burdened with no such difficulty. They see in the leading figure of Christendom, a sovereign who pretends to hold office in all centuries as Christ's representative and to be endowed with supernatural authority and prerogatives, they see in that person an exact fulfilment of all that was shown to John and also to Paul as the Antichrist, the man of sin, the man of sin that was coming. The only question is how the apocalypse identification of 666, 666 can be discovered in him. Does any official title appertaining to him when the letters of the title are summed up in their numerical value yield the number in question as the number of his name? It matters not, said Mr Roberts, whether 20 or other names can be made to yield the same number. It must be a name in connection with a one-man system which has wielded a compulsory authority in all the earth in centuries past. The papal system is such a system and there is no other system or man of whom this can be affirmed. It is therefore a simple question of whether a system answering in all the material points to the prophecy presents also this feature of identification that its name numerically estimated is equal to 666. Mr Roberts says the answer is before us in the Greek name Latinos L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S which in plain English may be said to mean Latindom or Latin power, kingdom or church headed up in the Pope. The letters of this name added together according to their arithmetic value give the number 666. Now ladies and gentlemen if you're not aware of it some languages attribute a numerical value to each letter of the alphabet. We don't do that in English, but for example, the Greek language attributes an, a numeric value to each of the letters of the alphabet. And the book of Revelation, incidentally, is written in Greek originally. So if we take the word Latinos, L-A-T-E-I-O-N-S, the the meaning being Latin man or Latin power, 
we find that the sum of the values in the word Latinos is 666. And at the bottom of the slide, you probably can't read the Greek above it, but it's L-A-T-E-I-N-O-S. L has a numeric value in Greek of 30, A has a value of 1, T of 300, E of 5, I of 10, N of 50, O of 70, and S of 200. And if you add that up, what you come to is 666. So, ladies and gentlemen, it is quite clear, isn't it, as we examine the Word of God, as we examine the Scriptures, it's not difficult for us to determine who the Antichrist is, who the man of sin is, who that wicked is. It is the papal system. It is the popes which have exercised such a bad influence down through history. And while the Pope pictured in this slide is not the current Pope, nevertheless, the ambition of the papacy has always been to control the world. And all the evidence points in one direction. The Antichrist, the man of sin, or that wicked one, are all descriptions of the papacy which by doctrine and practice is often diametrically opposed to the doctrinal teaching, the standards and purposes of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, dear friends, we need to consider this question. Where do you stand? The teachings of the Roman Catholic Church will lead Catholics and many Protestants to believe that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth, to establish God's kingdom and to reign from Jerusalem, that he is the Antichrist. That's what they will believe, because their understanding of the word of God is wrong, you see. So I'll just say that again. The teachings of the Roman Catholic Church will lead Catholics and many Protestants to believe that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth to establish God's kingdom and to reign from Jerusalem, that they will believe that Christ is the Antichrist, and that therefore, by all means, he must be opposed. So, when Christ returns to the earth, ladies and gentlemen, will you be for him or against him? When he returns, will you regard him as the Antichrist, or will you regard him as the Son of God? Where, my dear friends, do you stand on this vital question?